Podcast 034, Sepulcher Film Presentation, Part 1. Sponsored by my buddies at PantryParatus.com. Uh, they sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. All right, it's on. Say hi to the pod, people. That's right. All right, we just got done watching Seth Holster's video, uh, Farming with Nature. And, uh, and, and the one thing I wanted to point out, I didn't, wasn't there something early, in the, early on where there was a, a stalk of something and it was covered in aphids, black aphids? So um, who can tell me how that is permaculture or how permaculture is different from organic approaches based on a bunch of aphids on a stalk or something. Anybody know? Anybody have a wild guess? They weren't seen as pests. Why were they not seen as pests? Okay, so permaculture doesn't see things as being pests. Okay, yeah, on the back? They were actually decomposing the plant material so it could be used for Purpose. Decomposing the plant material so it can be used for other purposes. But then, like, don't you want to harvest food from that? For most of it, yeah. That's right. For most of it. Very good. I mean, you're, yeah, you're, you're on the right track. So in the world of an organic system, then usually you're growing things in a monocrop. You start seeing aphids on something, you know that pretty soon your whole field of whatever it is is going to be covered in aphids and it's going to wipe out your crop. But in a permaculture system, when you see a plant being attacked by aphids, then your, your thought is kind of like, well, that plant shouldn't have been there, <laughs> you know? Because you see how he mixed up all his seed, and he's out there flinging it around and kicking it around, and he doesn't have a great big patch of flat land. He's making his land just as crazy as possible. He's got uh, uh, terraces put in. He's got, and the terraces are kind of wavy so that there's, so the low spot of the terraces are different than the high spots of the terraces. And then he's got the hugel culture beds going every which way, and he's got all kinds of wonkiness going all over the place. He's got ponds here and there and creeks and whatnot. So then he goes and he takes these, these big handfuls of seed and he's flinging it all over the place. Well, some places the seed is going to do really well. And some places the seed is going to not. And in those places where it doesn't do well, well, you need something to get in there and get that out of there. And then the aphids are going to go in there and they're going to do their job and get it out of there. And then something else is going to thrive in that spot. I mean, something, there's other things growing right next to that plant that are grooving on that spot. And so the stuff that doesn't do so well in that spot needs to get out of the way to make room for the stuff that's going to do well in that spot. So we don't really... Now, of course, if you hardly got any of uh, some crop, like, oh, I got hardly any onions because they got add up by something. Well, you might start thinking to yourself that I'm doing it wrong and I need to do it a different way. So recently there was some discussion on permies.com about... Uh, Colorado potato beetles. And this actually came when I went and posted something out of some other forum, thought I'd be helpful, and I got shouted down. That, you know, basically, uh, in this other forum, people didn't understand permaculture. And so then they were like, I'm not going to go, because I was saying, you know, if you spread your, it's about the Colorado potato beetle. If you spread your potatoes out, and then it's like, you know, potatoes are like only 5% of your overall crop load, and they're mixed up at everything, then, you know, what happens is, is that if one plant gets hit by Colorado potato beetles, all the other potato plants are untouched. 
generally, and it depends, and there's a lot more to it. But then this guy said, what are you talking about? I'm not going to go and rip out 95% of the potato plants in order to fight Colorado potato beetles. That's just nuts. I was like, dude, you totally didn't get it. <laughs> so it, it's a very different way of thinking about it. So when I saw that up there, the aphids on there, some people might see that and think, oh, this permaculture system is awful. Look, it's got the plant covered in aphids. And it's like, nope, that's, that's cool. We like that. That's all right. All right, so now, Q&A means that I don't just stand up here and talk about whatever I think is cool. You guys get to ask questions, and, and I'll see if... And we've got a volunteer right off. <laughs> uh, he was doing a machine. It looked like a cross between a four-wheeler and a tractor. Do you know what? Okay. I, I saw him with a tractor. Okay, a tractor. It had a three-point hitch on the back, and he had a thing he was lifting and lowering, and he put all the straw on it and pumpkins and whatnot. Okay. My impression is, is that he pretty much just uses that tractor to, like, haul things around. I don't think he, he does any, much in the way of tilling. I do think that, like, with some of his um, terraces, when he puts in a new terrace, I do think he'll take a disc to it to kind of level, level it out. And then uh, he'll put the seed down, and then he'll run the disc across it one more time. And then he'll walk on it, like a whole bunch of people go out there and walk all over it, just to kind of smash the, the get good uh, uh, dirt to seed contact. You know, um, some folks will go and they'll, they'll put a roller on the back of their tractor and drag that over it to do it, but <clears throat> they just usually walk on it. Um, but then that's like the last time that that land is ever tilled, ever, <laughs> in the lifetime of Sep. So um, anyway, so yeah, a tractor. He's got a tractor, and he uses. I didn't see anything other than that tractor. Maybe I wasn't paying close enough attention, but I've seen this probably 35 times. So, question in the back. How does permaculture deal with invasive species, especially uh, like in this area? We have everything from. What do napweed? Yeah, napweed. Napweed. All right. Um, deal with some of those things that seem to be quite happy to come into the native environment and are out competing the natives? That is an excellent, excellent, beautiful, amazing question. How to deal with, and we can, we can go down the, the list of all the things that are labeled as noxious weeds, which by the way, anybody here know what the word noxious means? We have a noxious weed. What does noxious mean? Friend. Poisonous. No, you, you, you don't. You, it's not, friend. So now I have to shame you a little bit. You'll, you'll go. <laughs> noxious. Okay, I'm going to roll my eyes. <laughs> noxious. <laughs> Poisonous. <laughs> no, it does sound like it. It sounds like toxic, doesn't it? It sounds like toxic weed. Yeah, poisonous. It sounds like it. But don't, no, that's not what it means. Anybody know? Anybody got I'll tell you, it means the government is against it. That's all it means. Noxious. It's a noxious weed. It's evil. It'll kill your children. <laughs> no, it means the government is somehow, and, and, and it's like napweed. Let's take a good look at it. Hey, when you're out in the forest, how much napweed do you see? Not much. Like pretty much, if you get a thick enough forest, you don't see any of it. You know, so I was at this thing, and so you were mentioning something about um, weed control or something like that. And, and so uh, Jerry Marks is the Missoula County Weed Control Board guy. He's a really sharp guy, really good. And then he put out the question, uh, what do we do uh, with, with the face of Mount Sentinel? You, you know, the, we're going to make a recommendation to the city council. And here was my recommendation. 
plant trees on it, that wipes out like 95% of, of your invasive weed problem. Ta-da! Done. Um, so in Seth's system, lots of trees. Now the other thing Seth's got going on is a lot of edge. He's got all kinds of lumpy land doing crazy lumpy things. And so all kinds of other species of plants can come in there and do their thing. And knapweed and some of the other invasives just don't like that. You know what invasive species really like? Monocrops on great big flat patches of land. Um, now, granted, we've got dry hillsides out here. Mount Sentinel is such a great testament to, um, to, to you know, hey, uh, all, all you invasive weeds come here and do your thing. Um, but uh, uh, a great thing about invasive weeds to also talk about is, like, um, invasive to when? Every plant that grows here right now was at some point in time an invasive plant. Then another aspect of invasives is going to be, uh, well, anyway, all right, so I'm going to stop with the invasive thing. Did I answer your question well enough? It does it for me. It does it for you. Okay, Fran, you want to, there's another woman, she had her, you got a comment. Okay, so Fran, I'll come back to you in just a moment. Yes, ma'am, comment away. When you're intercropping, which is what we used to call it 30 years ago, and you're throwing everything together, you create enough diversity that the weeds don't really become a big impact because there's enough other stuff that is the absence But it's, it's a pretty dense system. Lots of, you've got, like, you know, lots of stuff happening at the very same time in the very same spot. Would you agree with that? Exactly. I, I put a video up recently. Who, who here has seen my video about the jumping spider? So, so, so two people. <laughs> man, this crowd is lame, man. All right. So I've got this, this video up, and it's a, it's a jumping spider. came onto my monitor. I took a video of it and everything. But the key is, is that once, here in Missoula, a long time ago, I got bit by a brown recluse spider. I had a big welt on my arm for six months. And the point of the video was is that I no longer kill all spiders. I let all the jumping spiders and all of the daddy long legs be in my house because they eat up all the brown recluse spider food. They eat it all up, and now brown recluse spiders, they don't want spiders, they don't like to hang out because there's not much food left for them to eat. It's the same kind of thing. When you've, when you've got bare land, bare soil, well, what do you think is going to happen? Now, granted, when we've got a scenario like what's up on Mount Sentinel, and there's a bunch of other stuff growing up there, then, then, yeah, the invasives came, and that was a really great spot for them, and so then they moved in, and they took over. And, and yes, it's going to happen. But they were just, they're, they're the invasive of the last 20 years. But, um, you know, what, 500 years ago, what, what, what was the invasive then? There was, you know, uh, I think the Douglas fir tree came in 5,000 years ago. Should we go and kill off all the Douglas fir trees because um, they were an invasive at one point? Yes. <laughs> Actually, I, I wouldn't be too upset about that. Uh, but I'll kill them all. That would just be goofy. <laughs> so um, I'm going to get to you in a minute. Fran, are you all done? There's a difference between Mount Sentinel and our own agricultural areas. And I just want, True. I just wanted to make sure that um, I'm still worried about Mount Sentinel. I mean, the, you know, okay. the pot is dry, the soil is bylawn poor. It's just like an open invitation to... That way, as you said. That's but, a good point. But maybe tonight's topic really isn't about Sentinel. That could be almost a night in and of itself. 
for me, I don't have any trouble with invasives in my small yard, but you must be talking about quiet invasives. So I just wondered about what you do with weeds. Do you actually, because he doesn't actually weed anything. He kind of doesn't. He kind of does, but he kind of doesn't. And now we're back to recording. All right. So uh, um, Mount Sentinel. I've got, I've got an important thing to say about Mount Sentinel. Of all the land in, in the area, the place I would like to farm the most is the face of Mount Sentinel. That would be the best farmland in the area, I think. Why? Um, I, I, well, it's got good western exposure, and, in, and in, up there at the top, there's kind of a crook up there, which would have good southern exposure, and there's some forested land up there. I would like to use those trees for some Wafati projects. <laughs> My brother really wants to talk to me. <laughs> and yet, I, I should have turned the radio off on this thing before, uh, before starting this, but oh well. <laughs> um... And then the other thing is, is that here on the valley floor, when all that cold air comes down off of Mount Sentinel, where do you suppose it, co- it goes to? When it's like getting really cold, it pools up there. This is a frost pocket. It puddles here. Now, granted, you know, we've got a bunch of people living here. We've got all this asphalt, which helps to warm it and stuff like that. But I can get a longer growing season just a little ways up Mount Sentinel than I can down here on the, on the valley floor. And so I would, I would prefer to do that. Um, but that's that's just me. Now, <clears throat> uh, there's there's lots to be said, lots more to be said. But you're right. Mount Sentinel. We've talked about Mount Sentinel in this very room several times. And uh, um, I, right now, it, when I look at that, I mean, the open space folks just you know love, love, love it. And then uh, one one time I was talking to one of them and said. Yeah, I want to farm it. <laughs> and they're, no! <laughs> so uh, and I was pointing out to this other fellow, the other day, like, right up there, I want to get a farm going. I can see that spot right up there because you look up at Mount Sentinel to the right, there's kind of like another little mountain junior, and there's this little saddle between the two, and it's like, right in there, yeah. And this, on top of our and so he says, he says, you know, uh, apparently there's a bunch of um, uh, transients that live up there. <laughs> and that little spot so you might not you know you might have some people up there that want to hang out with you but uh yeah they, they might you know be more of a hindrance than a help all right so uh are you guys all taking care did we answer your question so you're you're itching to say something so you referred to the spruce deserts was that uh that awesome or that guy is a genius was that a government reforestation project or how did it come to just be a monoculture? You weren't here last month, were you? Sucks to be you. <laughs> so uh, that's uh, sort of, kind of, a little bit. Um, basically, the, in, in last month's uh, video that we watched, um, it was the one about uh, terraces and raised beds. Uh, he talks about how the government was requiring people to take their land that they owned and to plant it in conifers. And then he said it would take three generations for it to grow big enough to where they could harvest it. And then when they harvest it for the logging, um, the amount of money that they're paid for the wood at the mill is less than what they had to pay to get it down off of the mountain. Then, on top of that, he points out different sections where, um, because they're shallow-rooted, a whole bunch of trees were all wiped out all at once. 
because um, you know uh, a wind came or it was a mudslide or something like that, and all the trees, boom, they're gone. And then what did they do? They went and replanted it with conifers. So, and then he talks about how in order to do what he does, the government is regulating his land so much that he has to go to each of the fruit trees and remove the tag. So it'll say it's a so-and-so cherry, and he has to take the tag off. So it doesn't say that because then it just went from being a fruit tree to a tree. <laughs> so, um, and apparently that's a big deal. If you grow on a fruit tree, that's not okay. But if you're growing a tree, that's okay. So he's, he's got all these weird little things he's got to go do, like, his, like uh, um, where he puts in a terrace. He can't call it a terrace. Uh, I can't remember what he calls it. I, I, I think it might be a trail or it might be – but there's a lot of things he cannot call it. He has to call it a something or another, and then he's allowed to put it in. But um, he's, he's paid tons and tons of fines for doing it wrong. And, um, and, but yet now that he's got this done, the people, the funny thing is, is he started off with land that was pretty much just a conifer. I know I'm wandering off topic a little bit, but this is what I do. He started off with land that's very similar to all the other stuff you see around there, and then he transformed it, and now the people down in the village, you know, poo-poo, you know, what's up there? It's like, well, he's got a sweet spot of land. That's why he's able to do the things that he does. That's why he's able to grow things that we're not able to grow down on the valley floor. So, <clears throat> Spruce Desert, I think, is like just genius in that um, it, it, it's the epitome of the, the, the monoculture. And, and uh, uh, he, he points out in, this, in the other video from last month, he points out how um, it's a spruce desert. It has no butterfly, no deer, no uh, no bird. And it's like, you're right, you go to these these forests where it is, there's a big gob of spruce. And it's like you look inside and it does. It looks like death inside of there. And then you don't hear birds. And it's But you go to some other forest where it's like deciduous or a mixture or something like that, and there is a plethora of life. So, and that's a big thing that he does. I know that when he was in Washington State a couple years ago, he pointed at an area of land and he says, the government won't allow us to touch this because there's a mud puddle in it. And that mud puddle is designated um, like some sort of wet spot or something like that. And he wanted to put it in a pond. He wanted to enhance the wet spot, but no, he's not allowed to. And you're looking at it and he's like, he, he called it bio-death. Because he, he goes around the things he creates, he calls them biotope. They're lush land. They're just lush with life. And then this thing that we were looking at was like a log sitting in a mud puddle. It even had like this little looking oil slick looking thing on it. It didn't look like there was much life there at all. And then here he was, the mighty, the glorious, the amazing Sepp Holzer. And he was not allowed to sepify this spot because there's a fucking mud puddle there. And it just looked like sick death. And yet, nope, you can't touch that. So, anyway, did I answer your question? Did I cover it good enough? No. Does, does he uh, experiment with trees the same way he experiments with plants? What kind of experimenting did you have in mind? Well, I guess he, it seems like he likes to grow as much as he can as far as plants. But I haven't heard of him talk as much about, you know, like a wide variety of tree species, which maybe would have different useful purposes or uh, could sell as a niche. Well, you saw, you saw him selling that one tree. You know, it had to go, he sells the trees, but they have to be with their plant family. 
And so um, uh, one of the things I think is really interesting, if you now I stop the, the video for a moment to point out, look at that tree. Look at that fruit tree. It's got branches next to the ground. That's a sap tree. And then we saw uh, trees that had no branches next to the ground. They looked like the stuff that we normally get at a nursery. That's because in order to make the movie, they wanted to video him planting trees. So they went to a nursery, and they got a whole mess of trees and said, here, plant these, and we'll take video of it. So he's got his own way of tree propagation, especially for apple trees, and he does not graft and um, he has all the trees grow next to the ground. This is what Fukuoka does also. And uh, Fukuoka refers to it as no pruning, but the thing that Fukuoka pointed out very painfully in his um, book, One Straw Revolution, is that once you start to prune a fruit tree or any kind of tree, you must forever continue to prune it or it will die. On the other hand, if you have a, a fruit tree or any kind of tree that starts off and you never prune it, then you never have to prune it. It'll, it'll go on for a very long, rich life without any pruning whatsoever. And an apple tree is going to end up looking a lot like a bush. Um, but it's going to have a, a central leader in it, and it's not going to have a bunch of water sprouts or anything near the bottom. It's going, to be na- it's going to naturally kind of prune itself to have a central leader, which is contrary to the way a lot of um, people raise fruit trees. Although now it's like uh, almost all fruit trees are grafted and, and they put them on little tiny dwarf rootstock that uh, kind of, you know, makes them suffer their whole life. Anyway, <clears throat> is that enough experimenting for you? Did you want something more? Well, I guess I was just want, I mean, like, it seems like he does a lot about fruit trees, but, you know, like, uh, there's uh, so many other trees, like, that it seems like maybe they would have a purpose. Uh, black locusts. I think yeah. he's got a lot of black locusts. Um, uh, and, of course, he calls them something else. I can't remember what he calls them. But uh, uh, black locust is an amazing tree. Uh, it's an amazing permaculture tree in general. It's like one of the permaculture favorites. Or, uh, you like, saw him planting plums. I've made walnuts or... Um, I'm, I'm sure he does walnuts. I'm sure he's... Hazelnut, too. He mentioned hazelnuts. There you go. Is he growing but, from seed? He just takes the seeds out of the fruits and starts his own saplings? I want him to grow from <laughs> seed. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure how much he does from seed. I, I know that for apples... He has a special form of cloning one apple tree that he really loves. But he does it by monkeying with their roots. And I could explain it, but it would take a little while. Um, Did I answer your question? Yes. I did enough experimenting with trees, so a lot of variety. Fran, I'll come back to you in a moment. Fran? I'm holding a single culture bird across my shoulder just like um, we did in the workshop. How close to my apricot tree can I have that um, that eagle culture bed? Um, I would not build it... See, if you, if you build it so that it's covering up a bunch of the apricot tree roots, that apricot tree is going to be sad for a while until its roots get up into the culture stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, I, might, I might bring it to the apricot tree a little gradually mm-hmm. um, just so that you don't strangle it because it needs to get air down into the soil and, and you'll be kind of asphyxiating it a little bit. Who here saw Fran in the movie about culture? 
Nobody? Oh, two people. Two people. Okay. Don't breathe. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> anyway, how is that yoga culture doing? I went by and took a picture of it last fall, uh, and it had shrunk down a fair bit. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm hoping to just go take pictures of it. I want it. What I want to do is I want to see it get real dry, and then um, and then go take a picture of it with everything green and thriving on it, while everything dry. There's all this dry stuff around it. I think that would be a good picture. So, um, but we'll see. In the meantime, did I answer your question? Yeah, I think so. I, I've already I've already built it. I guessed how far away my Epcot needs to be. My space is limited, so uh, I may stress the tree somewhat, but. Eventually, the roots will stress it a little more every year, and, and it, it'll adapt. But I think if you do it all at once, it might be a little too much yeah, stress. He does put trees next to his culture. Right, right. But there's a difference. Okay. Like if the tree is already established, and then you go and you strangle a bunch of its roots. So it's like if you have the butt of the hugu culture bed going up to the tree, okay. that'll be okay. okay. But if you have the hugu culture bed go like right next to the tree, that's not good. And you don't want to bury any of the trunk. Right. Right. I'm okay then. Thanks. Okay. I, I can sleep at night. <laughs> that's that's why I'm here because I help everybody sleep. <laughs> Next question. Caleb. And He talked about is he going out and harvesting ant eggs and using them for fish food and then selling them? Is that what I heard? Yes. Well, no, he's not selling them. He's feeding them to his fish. And if you read his autobiography, then um, there's one time when he goes and he saves a bunch of, like he gets an ant pile, and then he's bringing it back to his house because they were going to, like, build a road and wipe out the ant hill. And um, the fish and game folk show up. Hey! Hey! What are you doing? You're breaking the law. I'm here to arrest you. And uh, he's like, yeah, well, what are you going to do? What's the charge? You know, so Seth at this point, he's like learned the laws. That's what he's like, well, what's the, what's the charge? And uh, they're saying, you're going you're gonna to do something with these ants. You're going to like feed them to your fish. And, and he's like, nope, actually, I'm not going to. And that's not the idea. So I saved them from being bulldozed. And now I'm going, you know, they, I'm not going to feed them to my fish. So uh, what's the problem, officer? And so, uh, um, yeah, uh, he, he does take some of them, he, he'll take, he'll do all kinds of things. But, but normally, the fish, uh, he doesn't feed them anything. I mean, did you see all the polywogs in that one picture? No. That was fish food. <laughs> so I think, I think the fish are not needing, but of course, if you've got a bunch of ant eggs, or you've got a bunch of extra ants, or something like that, um, and you're trying to, you know, shuffle things around a little bit, well, sure, what the hell, feed them to the fish, they'll eat them. And egg treats. There you go. It's like candy. <laughs> little little fishy candy. Next question. Well, you were talking to her about her. I didn't quite hear. You're, you let the tree roots grow under the culture. You just pile it on top of Like, I have loose spruce trees. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> and so they're coming into my garden through it. Uh. What should I do? I, I, well, are the blue spruce trees on your property? Um, is there any chance that they're on what the city would call city land? So it's like, are they near the sidewalk? Oh, well, then I would take them down. They're a windbreak. Okay, well, if you like breaking wind, <laughs> and then <laughs> you, you break a lot of wind. Okay, great. 
Uh, I would actually, uh, there's other trees that could also work as uh, a windbreak. Like um, the garden, but is that? The thing is, is that blue spruce, I mean, any kind of conifer is allelopathic. That means that um, it exudes stuff that is kind of like all organic, natural herbicides. So if you look under blue spruce, is there much growing under there? Probably not. No. Not like probably nothing. Yeah. And that's that's the allelopathic effect. Hard at work. I should move the garden. You could move the garden. Um, if you've got lots of space, then yeah, you just move the garden. But if you're if you're on a city lot, you don't have a lot of space. I don't want space. You do have a lot of space. Well, then yeah, move the garden. Uh, a blue spruce is a beautiful tree, and I think that it has a lot of it. Uh, a lot of things that I like about it. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking about you got for a lot of folks, they've got an urban lot. And they can hold four trees total. And three of them are conifers, and they want to start doing some permaculture. And so the first thing I say is, time for those conifers to come down. But, yeah, you've got lots of space. In fact, a lot of places um, you have a lot of space, and it's like it's hard to get a tree established. And if you've got blue spruces already established, well, then, and you've got lots of space, well, then, yeah, do your permaculture stuff away from those trees. How about the crabgrass? How about it? It's different. <laughs> it's not allelopathic. It's, I mean, yeah, I know that, but what do you do about it? Um, I would have to say that um, I have seen lots and lots of crabgrass, and I have—I don't recall ever shedding a tear over crabgrass. Um, I don't recall ever shedding a tear. I mean, like, so, so if you got... Wow, <laughs> it's quarter to two in the morning we've been going on. Okay, uh, so we're probably going to start the, the next movie here real quick. Um, crabgrass, I mean, you got it in your lawn? You got it in your garden? Where do you got it? Where, I mean, if it's in your lawn, then, um, <clears throat> I don't know, you, you're probably not mowing high enough. How high you mow? I mow high. How high? <laughs> well, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, just keep doing that, and then, um, <laughs> and then, and then sometimes there's going to be patches of crabgrass. You know what? Uh, here's what I would do: is uh, I would plant more interesting things out in my lawn, so it's all kinds of wonky. I mean, basically, what I choose to do is to have a mobile meadow. I want to have edibles out there, medicinals. I want to have all kinds of fun things in my lawnish thing. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, then when I've got a patch over here that's got some uh, some crabgrass, and I got another patch over here with crabgrass, I really don't care. I mean, it, it's it's fine by me. I mean, it's serving the function that I wanted to serve. I can go out and have a picnic on it. I can have kids play on it. I can uh, have a yard sale on it. It can do all the things that it ever did for me before, and it can have all kinds of blossoms and flowers and edibles all growing within it. Now, if it's in my garden, I'll throw a little moldy hay on it. Oh. <laughs> and you know, because uh, it's because it, uh, you know, grasses can get in there and they can really, you know, outcompete a lot of stuff and be a problem. And then I just throw uh, lots and lots of moldy hay on it. And if I and then other times when my systems are going well enough, I'll do chop and drop. I'll go find some things. It's like, oh, I got some here I don't want. I'll go find some things I can chop out, and then build enough on it, and then I'll stack it on top of the thing I don't want. And that builds the organic matter. All right. <clears throat> Is it a quick question? Depends how long you want to answer it for. Because I'm thinking maybe we should get on to the video and then we can come back to more questions. But this will be, okay, this will be the last question before the video. I have a question about deer. Because they said he looks at what the deer want to eat and he plants their favorite things, you know, favorite tasty lettuce. Oh, whatever, right, Seth. And then they don't eat 
the, the grains. Does that only work if you have, you know, 40 hectares or whatever? Because if you, like, you know, I'm living in town and I only have a small yard. And we tried this, planting some stuff for the deer to have some and some for us, and the deer just ate all of it. <laughs> they were like, yes, salad bar. <laughs> You know, you gotta you gotta keep in mind that uh, uh, Seth has more than one motive going on here, and and uh, and Seth uh, loves the taste of venison. So uh, uh, having a few deer wander onto the property, I'm sure he's not getting too weepy about that. He's got another. It's it's like this works out pretty good. Well. Yeah, it starts making you think about how snares work and stuff, but uh, I'm sure that's probably not entirely legal either. Um, uh, it's I, I it gets into a complicated space when you talk about farming and deer. Then uh, I think nothing beats having a good dog. Um, and then when I'm doing farming, then I have lots of other farm animals. So then the only dog breed that I can have on the farm is the livestock guardian dog breeds, and that brings us into. I mean, that's for the chicken discussion. You should be here for the chicken talk. Okay, <laughs> we'll go into a lot of detail about that. <clears throat> um, in terms of in town, we I've heard the only thing you can do to keep deer out is to get a you know, twelve foot fence or something. And I don't have a dog, and so you know, is there another solution? There, there are other solutions, uh, and the thing is, is that it's dependent upon the deer pressure. Um, and uh, um, I thought that Toby Hemingway, uh, I mean, he's, got, he's the author of Guy's Guard, the most popular permaculture book out there. Uh, and this is not in his book. It was, it was in, uh, on, a, on a permaculture mailing list, um, and it was uh, in 2004 or so. So uh, you might have to go digging through the archives if you want to read this. I think I have a copy of it out at Permies. But uh, I think it's called How to Keep Deer Out of Your Stuff. And, um, but, but basically, he said it depends. It's like if you've got high deer pressure, if, if you've got a, a, a six-foot-tall fence all around your stuff, and you've got candy inside your fence, and outside the fence is death and starvation and no food, they are going to jump your six-foot-tall fence. On the other hand, if there's candy on both sides of the fence, you're good. It's like, why bother with that fence? It looks like a hassle. You know, I've got plenty of candy on this side. So, <clears throat> um, so yeah, deer pressure is a big part of it. Now, uh, other ways of keeping the deer out, there's, there's, if you've got low pressure, there are other ways. If it's high pressure, you've got to get the 8-foot-tall, 10-foot-tall fence. So, I mean, keeping deer out of your stuff, that's a good four-hour conversation, and we still haven't totally covered it. You and I on that. I think a lot of people have that. Well, uh, hey, you know, if somebody wants to set it up and then get the people to come in, then I'll come and talk, or I'll be on a panel maybe. You know, maybe that would be a fun thing to do. But, boy, i got to tell you, I'm tired of setting these things up and having only, what, a dozen people show up? So, <clears throat> it's, uh, uh, yeah, somebody else can set it up and get the people to come. And <laughs> I don't want to do it. I've, I've done this thing a few times where somebody says, uh, hey, I'm going to have 100 people come down to this thing. And, and so can you come and talk about something? And I get there to give a presentation, and there's two people. Oh, right, I forgot to tell other people about it. But this is okay, isn't it? <laughs> All right, let's watch the next part of the movie. And uh, so I guess, I don't know, what was that? Was that a half hour, 45 minutes? That'll make good for one podcast. So I'll just shut this thing off now. <laughs>